I had all the good intentions because I was told this is how to write and felt like I was failing because I didn't write correctly. I might end up with the finished product, but it wasn't done correctly. So I felt that was a failing on my part. And yeah, book three, I started out trying to do the correct way and then just threw it all out the window. Went, yep, that's not going to happen. It's not me. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. So welcome back everybody to part two of writing rural romance. If you tuned in last week, you would have been listening to and enjoying, I'm sure, my chat with Maya Linnell, Leonie Kelsell and Stella Quinn, all fabulous best-selling Australian rural romance authors. It was a really long chat, we covered a lot of ground, so I decided to split the episode in two. And if you haven't listened to last week's chat, you can listen to them in any order. We do cover different things each in each episode. But this week is part two of that chat, and we ended last week's episode with my question about writing sex scenes in Australian rural romance, how they went about it, what the general consensus was about how far the bedroom door should be opened or closed. And then we go on to chat about quite a lot of other things, including writing process, dealing with publishers, social media in this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope that you enjoy this chat with Leonie, Maya and Stella. And I'm looking forward to doing some new chats with authors coming up. We have Sophie Green and a chat about her new release, The Bellbird River Country Choir. We've got Cassie Hamer coming up chatting to Minnie Dark about her brand new release. And we've got quite a few other new ideas and episodes coming up at Rights for Women. Massive shout out, as always, to everybody who's been listening, to everybody who's been leaving reviews. If you do have a chance to leave a review at any time, please do. That's how other listeners manage to find the podcast. And a special shout out to Patreon supporters of the podcast. I am a little bit behind with the bonuses. I had a lot of things going on in my private life in the last couple of months that have precluded me from being able to keep up with the Patreon bonuses. But Never fear, I haven't forgotten them. You will be getting the back list of the Patreon bonuses and they'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So massive thank you to everyone and hope that you enjoy this second part of my chat on writing rural romance with Maya Linnell, Stella Quinn and Leonie Kelsell. Really interested to hear where you all stand on how far open or closed the bedroom door should be and is in your novels, and if you've had any discussion on that with your publishers. So, Leonie, I might start with you on that one. I actually write erotic fiction as one of the genres under Laney K, so that's, you know, wide open door, wide open everything, actually. But with the rural fiction, 
I don't have any open door scenes. Ash Crossing, I think it was more love than romance in that book anyway. There's a lot of different types of love between different people, different generations. Family closed door in this, but that wasn't a deliberate decision. It's just the way the books lead. They don't open themselves to having that erotic scene in. And to be quite honest, the fifth book, which I am writing and rewriting, did start out with more of an erotic element because I thought, oh, I'll do, you know, a hotter version. And I didn't like it. It's like I can't get the right depth for the characters in erotic work. We cannot convey that another writer can't. It's just not the way my characters play out. So I keep having to pull it back. That book it's technically finished, but now I'm concerned that it's leaning too much towards just the romance element. There are backstories in that, but I worry that it's not going to be enough. So I will just, I'm years ahead of my contract, so I'll just keep rewriting that one and second-guessing myself a lot. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? As someone who's coming from writing in a different genre and having that door flung wide open, but, you know, it, and this is what it all comes back to with sex scenes, isn't it? It's got to be appropriate for the character yeah. and the situation and you've automatically felt that just doesn't work for these types of stories that you're writing. Yeah, if it's not appropriate, then it's gratuitous and it's just like a scene stuck in there that doesn't fit with your storyline. It's got to flow properly. And that's why I'm saying to some writers, it will work and it will fit in their book, just not for the ones I've Yeah. How about you, Maya? Where do you stand on that? And is it deli- a deliberate decision or, again, is it just something that's naturally come out of the writing? Yeah, I've been a closed door with all four books and... I think the most that you'll see is there'll be some kissing, there'll be some thoughts of wouldn't it be nice to have his finger tracing down from my earlobe to my jaw to my collarbone. I'll have the characters envisaging that, but that's pretty much the extent of it for me. And I have no problems with reading sex scenes. I don't mind the odd sex scene in a book that I'm reading. I I will often skip through depending on where I am. If I'm sitting on the couch and I've got my daughter reading on one side of me and my son texting on the other side of me, I'm not going to sit there and read <laughs> a sex scene in a book that, that I'm enjoying. A different situation if I was reading in the evening or something like that. A completely different scenario. But yeah, I find that they can be done so well and they can be so tantalizing without necessarily giving all the detail. And then some people do them really well as well with the detail. So I don't have any problem with it. I just don't find it comes that easily to me. So it's easier just to go, oh, I'll, should we? have some, uh, I can't even think of a really cheesy segue that I would have used in a book, but I will have the, it quite clear that's what they're heading off to do, or they've just yeah. come back from. It becomes obvious in, given the context of, of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. I don't mind not having to worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you say, it's got to work for the characters and your readership as well. Stella, how about you? Uh, there's a great book I've got called something like how to read books like an English professor. And he talks about this topic and how the Victorian dealt with it because it was a very prudish era in society. So he said it would always be like the scene would end with billowing curtain and that was like the hashtag sign. So, yeah, yeah. So now whenever I'm watching like a movie or something with my one of my kids and it's, the mu- music takes that certain tone, we both look at each other and go, billowing curtain. Yeah. <laughs> but so I am a bit of a curtain billower. Door mildly ajar, like just like 
only just slightly. You'd have to have your eyeball up to it to see. And I, when I first, because Ruro found me, not the other way around, I did ask my publisher what if there was a, a genre standard that HarperCollins were comfortable with. And she said, uh, in fact, this is her answer to every question when I say, but what should I do? She always says, you can do what you want. Whatever you want, it's fine. It's your story. So she only ever makes suggestions, but she said, whatever you want, it's fine. Just whatever you feel the story warrants. So to date, they've all been just door, tiny bit of jar, and I'm very comfortable with that too. Mm-hmm. My, I've got four adult kids who all read my books, and one of them with the first one, she said, oh, I've got to this sort of scene moment. I can see something about to go. The curtains have started moving. And she said, I'm low-key scared. <laughs> and they would have checked her back and say, no need to be scared. <laughs> Honey, you should say that because my, with my first book, there is, just trying to think, Blackwater Lake, there, I know there's at least one sex scene in it. It doesn't go for very long, but it's, you see what's going on. And my daughter was at a pony club event, so it came out in 2012, so she's, what, 26 now. It's a while back. And they were all sitting around the fire and there were a few of the girls and the mothers sitting there reading the book. They'd all taken it because it literally just come out. They, And, of course, a couple of them were up to that particular scene and decided to read it out loud around the campfire. And Georgia was just absolutely mortified. <laughs> she just sure. she came. And, of course, the character in that book drives a combi. I was driving a combi at the time. So, you can, so yeah, she came home and just said, never, ever write a scene like that again. But doesn't Georgia realise she, she could make money out of it? There's a podcast called Hashtag My Dad Wrote Porno. That's right. My, yeah, my eldest daughter actually hashtags and stuff with my mum wrote a porno. <laughs> my parents in their 80s have read my erotic fiction. I have a great missing family, so. Yeah. Out there. That's great, yeah. It's funny now like that they're older. My more recent books have got probably similar. I guess that's just my style. I guess it'd be half open the door or maybe three quarters briefly. And they, it's funny when they read the books now, there's just no comments. It's, we just don't comment on those bits. <laughs> Very funny, yeah. So the rural romance genre, I was trying. I, this is something I've thought about quite often and I know I've written blog posts and things on it, but when I sat down last night to think about where did it all start and in Australia, I'm thinking it goes back to Rachel Treasure. And when I looked up Rachel's books, her first book came out in 2005. So it's quite a long time that this genre has been out there and building and growing. We're now in, I think, going back probably around 2010 to 2012, there was it started to really pick up. And over the last decade, there's been a big growth in the rural romance genre from what I can see. Probably about 2016, I did have noises from the, my publisher at the time that oh, we think that genre is probably on the way out. Now, I can't see any evidence of that myself. But what have you noticed, each of you, about the evolution of the genre and where you think it is now, In particularly here, I guess, and we're talking particularly in Australia? Stella might start with you. You're a newbie to the genre, so it's interesting to get perspective on that. So in terms of where I think it come from, yes, that was it Jillaroo, I think, Rachel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's building on some real Australian classics. If you think of that aren't, you wouldn't call them a romance in the genre description of romance, but they are a romantic novel, A Town Like Alice mm. and Thornburg. So they the some the driving storyline that certainly kept me interested reading through those stories was the romance between the main characters. So what rural romance has done is taken 
like it's looked at what did made readers love those books, why are those books classics and so popular over generations. And the romance was a big part of that. So they've just plucked one of the enduring themes out of it and carried it forward. So whilst Jill LaRue maybe seemed to be the false rule on earth, I think it's standing on the shoulder of some real Australian classics. That yeah, are, that's true. There. At their heart, I think part of the popularity of them in recent years has been the pandemics. Certainly for me, I know the world has just seemed like a really crap plate for a long time. And I think there's something a little bit nostalgic about the rural romance genre in that you can, I know I don't live in the country, so this is a wild generalisation, but I'm thinking pace is a little less frenetic and there's a sort of a more simplistic style of living than in the city there is currently when there's a lot of people and parks and rules and what have you. I think that would have contributed to its popularity in recent years. That where it's going, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully people like us are carrying the torch so well and burning so brightly that the reader will be one or more. Well, let's hope so. May I, what would you say in answer to that? Yeah, I agree with Stella. I hope there's a really long, happy future for rural romance because these are Australian stories. They're stories about things that happen on our farms in our small towns. And as much as that craze for the TikTok, BookTok, all the American rom-coms that are rolling through and taking those bestseller charts, which sounds a little bit not ungrateful because I think that the more that romance is embraced as a genre and accepted, I think that's better for everyone who writes under that banner. But I think it's something that needs to be treasured because if we don't tell these stories, they're just going to fade out. And yeah, so I think it's really important and the support that we have from our readers is just so sensational. And those booksellers that take the books and champion the cause and push them into the hands of readers. I also think that in terms of changing Probably then less focused on everyone has to be a farmer and everyone has to wear a dryer bone and an Akubra. I think it's evolved to appreciate that there are so many different aspects of farming communities, farming families, and we're seeing things like same-sex couples are now coming more so into rural romance, which, you know, given how small-town attitudes can sometimes take a while to change, it's really great to see that type of diversity. I think we're more likely to see more characters from different races and cultures being more prevalent in rural romances as well because again it's really important that we're reflecting these different shifts in our communities and small towns aren't isolated in this yeah great really good points Maya. how about you Leanne? like i said i'm really the last person who should speak on the evolution of the genre i am the last person on the evolution of the genre where it's going because i don't know the genre i have read the last two of Maya's books and I've read two of Carly Lane's and that is literally all I have read in this genre. So where it started, I don't know. Where it's going, I don't know. I do think that probably the genre name should be changed now that I know what it is to rural fiction because I think mm. we're encompassing so much in our stories that we're getting a little bit too pigeonholed simply by a name. And I think if it was more broadly accepted as rural fiction, there would be no risk of it ever dying out because it's just the stories of the strain, if we title it that way. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's something that I always found, I found with my four really 
dedicated rural fiction books was they were really romantic elements, but I often felt like that calling them a rural romance was on one hand, a little bit disingenuous to romance readers because I'm not giving them a full romance. And it also, I also felt that it was probably excluding readers who may be put off by what they may see as a bit of a generic cover. Oh yeah, that's just one of those books. But if they actually took the time to open it and read the story, it's really a women's fiction story. And so it's really hard, isn't it? It's this whole genre box thing that we find ourselves in, which can work to our advantage, but then also work against us. Completely. Yeah. So, Leonie, you ha- are someone who has written across different genres. Do you ever feel, or do you feel at the moment like that is a, a box for you, or that you are restricted in terms of writing outside the genre now that you have established yourself as a rural romance or rural fiction author? I know that I am restricted to writing in this genre under this name. It has been made clear to me. I had offers from other publishers, but they don't take my book. If I put it under this name, and of course, Alan and Amon have invested in creating the brand for me, so they don't want me to take this name anywhere else. Obviously, I can revert to my pen name, Lane K, and write whatever I want under there. But yeah, if I want to use my legal name, yes, I do feel I am very restricted to continuing to write this genre. Luckily, I like it. Yeah, so it's a plus. It's not an onerous thing to be happening for you. Yeah. How about you, Leanne? Oh, sorry, Leanne. Yep. That's fine. I was just going to say, and I do finally understand the reasoning behind keeping your name genre specific. I used to argue against it with my pen name, wrote across genres, and my co-writer kept saying, you can't do that, you must stick to the genre. And I argued it, but evidently I don't know everything and she was right and my publisher is right. (laughs) (laughs) We live and learn. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really happy writing rural romance. I do, as Leonie said, I'm with Alan Ullen and I love, I've got a wonderful publisher there with Annette Barlow. They do such a wonderful job putting together these beautiful posters and uh, bookmarks and banners for me. So it would be, I know, difficult for them to try and all of a sudden introduce me as male and elder horror crime author but that's fine because it's a spot where I feel comfortable. So it, yeah, I think it's going to keep working just fine. Mm, not a problem. Yeah. Stella? A bit early, maybe. I want to write, I want to write everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, that's right. Yeah, you said yeah. on this. But what I'm boxed in by is time. Currently, so I'm writing a book a year. So I've got four books under contract. Two are done. One I'm doing. So one a year, and I find it really does take me that whole. I don't really have spare time. I'm interested in crime. In and another name, I've entered the Scarlet Stiletto a few times. One, one I didn't win the Scarlet Stiletto, but I won the... Domestic, oh no, Malice Domestic, I think was the category. Uh, and before I published through HarperCons, I did a bit of indie publishing. So I feel there is no barrier to writing whatever other than time. I've got a few, I've got a full World War II historical manuscript, a boy's own adventure set me again that I have tried to get published with no success. I've been a finalist in the Ampersand Prize in middle grade fiction with a story which also got me to a week at Veruna with the firm press through a competition. I feel by grade middle grade a really good crack. I would get over the line, but it's finding the time. And particularly with middle grade, like I could put hundreds and hundreds more hours into it. But how do you self-publish middle grade? I just don't think you can in this country because it's all in the distribution and library and schools game, which has got to be through the big publishers, I would assume. I would love to be through Yeah. 
And I've got a whole vicarage, like murder in the vicarage type idea about a menopausal matron who's really snarly. And yeah, I've got so many ideas. Oh. I just need that lotto win. <laughs> Something. <laughs> yeah. I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. watch with to see what's yeah, in your yeah. future. So I know that we, I'm keeping you a, a while, but there's a few other things I just wanted to cover. So can we very quickly go through, because I know as listeners, the writers out there are going to want to know, what is your writing process, Stella? Let's start with you. How do you go about okay, from- I'm a plotter. Yep. I'm definitely a plotter, but I do really have to start with my character. So I start with someone will be really angsty and I'll develop their problem first. And then I think about a male character who might be a complete mismatch for that sort of personality type. And then it just gives you lots of opportunities for them to really not quite get the other person for a period until there's been time to learn about more about each other. I do love the idea of having quite a few storylines on the go and trying to find some commonality where they might intersect. And yeah, I tend to write index cards for every scene. I really do those goal motivation conflict charts where I try and think about their external goals and their external goals and what they might be kidding themselves about. I go to a zillion workshops because I love workshops. I recently went to one by Graham Simpson who wrote Goals oh, yeah. Project. It was terrific. It was held at the Avid Reader, which is a really funky little independent bookstore in Brisbane. It's, it's all loved by everybody here. And he kept saying, but what's the dramatic question now? And it was such a great idea. I hadn't really thought it through, but I thought well, at the beginning of Sona Tanner, Clarence, the main character, Kirsty, her dramatic question is, how can I run away from this problem? Because that's what I do. I run away from the bad stuff. But then, of course, as the story progresses and she's, being influenced by this new community of people she's met, she starts to think, oh, her dramatic question changes and becomes, would the world end if I actually did stick around to deal with a problem? Like, maybe I can deal with problems. So that becomes her dramatic question. How do I change myself and start being a person who sticks? It was such a great idea to keep in my mind of our mm-hmm. I do get lost in the middle. Yeah. I often get in the middle and think, these index cards are rubbish. I don't know what the heck I thought I would cut us. <laughs> off track <laughs> it's great when you go to a workshop or something or you listen to a podcast or something and you just one little thing will just be one that thing. light bulb yeah, won't yeah. it that can then just stay yeah. with you yeah. yeah yeah Maya how about you what's your process yeah I have I started out being quite the plotter and I've just I've gone a little bit off track with the old plotting thing and to my detriment so at the moment I'm up to my eyeballs in a second draft that feels like it's taking me a lot longer than it should and at times like this, when I've got my 100,000 words and then I start a whole new document and start putting stuff that works from the first draft into this blank document and going, oh my gosh, this is a painful process. Why didn't I plot more? So I do have moments when I will do, I'll sit back and I'll write, okay, well, here's what I'd like to happen. Here's my possible conflicts. And it's quite interesting to look back. I have a notepad for every novel that I write. And it's really neat to look at the ideas that I had throughout it that I didn't even touch. No, they definitely didn't do that. And that character's gone. And yeah, so the one that I'm writing at the moment, Book Five, which comes out next year and is set in a winery, feels still a little bit like a mumble jumble that I'm really hoping when I give it to Annette, she'll look at it and go, okay, here's what we need to do. This and this and this, which isn't quite right, but I'll give it to her. And then I'll have a little bit more time to think about what is not working in it and try and fix it while she's reading it and going, what the hell is this? So it'll buy me a little bit more time, I think. <laughs> I've always her magic wand. 
Oh, hopefully, with a bit of luck. Um, <laughs> or you know, the start of a new series for you too, isn't it, Maya? So it's probably a lot more that you've got to set up, I guess. Yeah, there is. There's a whole new cast of characters, a whole new location. It's all foreign, We're working in a winery. I haven't done that before, so it involves a lot more research. But So with Paperback Cure, when I started doing that, I knew I wanted to have Diana as the main character. I knew that I wanted her to be working on a dahlia farm. I knew that she had four boys. So, of course, when you've got four children, you're going to have different challenges. And with that family life slash romance conflict, and I knew that I needed to have her other half something happened to him because otherwise I'd just be doing what I did in book two, which is a couple that's already together at the start of the book. And then they go along and have to sort out their stuff. And I didn't want to do that again. Unfortunately, there's a character who people loved in the first three books who is no longer in the fourth book. But yeah, I think it's listening to lots of podcasts, reading prolifically and always keeping my eyes out for different ideas. I remember Pam, one of the podcast interviews you did last year, I think with Joanne and Elle, turned the absolute ending on the, the head for, on its head for this book, Paperback Hill. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was working towards something and I was working towards and I think Joanna said, what about if you just flip it on its head and change what you think that they're striving for? Don't give it to them at the end. And I was like, oh. and I remember walking on the beach, hearing that and going, yes, I am going to change that bit of the ending. So... Lots of great things can be gained whilst listening to podcasts and reading other people's books and enjoying their their approaches. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Couldn't agree more. Leonie, what's your process? I feel like the odd kid on the block here because my process <laughs> is so bad. Don't worry. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be in your camp. Well, I mean, you should see my desk. I'm facing a pin-up board and there's just like these scraps of paper with hieroglyphics squiggled on them, pinned randomly all over the place. There's pieces on the floor, there's pieces on the desk because I don't like anything. The closest I get is the inspiration for the River Gum Cottage was a dung beetle. I was out walking, I saw a beetle on its back and we stopped to turn it over and rescue it and went, oh, that'd make a good meat chip. Well, let's write a book about that. Taylor and I, my youngest daughter, when we're road tripping, we will brainstorm something like this year's book was supposed to be, we will write a story about a female pilot. Now, fortunately, I got distracted, crazy to do, because I think there's about three books out this year with female pilots in. So we all seem to have the same idea at the same time. So we will, she will jot down notes, or she would before she was the driver. She would scribble stuff in a notebook, which neither of us could read, like not one word in 20 to kind of be in our brains bit. And then it turns to her nagging me going, Where's the book about Amelia and Heath? I'm like, you must like 2026, 2027 now and not gone any further than that original idea. But I just get totally distracted with something else and sit faff around at my computer for about eight hours a day and sometimes produce a paragraph and very occasionally produce a chapter in that time. So absolutely no structure. I also don't do, I don't learn how to write. And I like to say it's because I've, don't have time, but obviously the fact that I'm sitting here faffing around for eight hours a day means if I was more structured, I would have time to do that, but it's just not me. I just like to be openly creative. It's, it is the only way I'm creative. I'm not artistic at all. My son is a fabulous painter, um, but I can't even draw a square box. I'm absolutely hopeless. So the only way I'm creative is in my writing. So I just give it free reign and have 
heard and I actually had a note on my board about giving the characters goals and motivations and hurdles and I've stuck it up there and I even opened up a Word document for myself that's titled How to Write Good and it had things like do this. I never flip and even open it and I really should. Look, you don't, there's no shoulds, I don't think. I think whatever, everybody has their own process and like you say, it can be different for every book depending on where you're at and what's happening in your life and where the ideas come from because I found like initially I didn't plot at all. Then I felt, oh no, I need to plot. So I did spend some time plotting, but then I've gotten myself into a box where I can't plot because I just can't because I don't know what's going to happen until I write it. But then I find that's a real block for me because then I think, oh, well, now I can't write anything because I haven't got the plot. So I've had to go back to basics and just go, okay, just let yourself write anything and yeah. really go with that creative stuff and see what happens. I was so glad to hear you say it because that's exactly what I do. I had all the good intentions because I was told this is how to write and felt like I was failing because I didn't write correctly. I might end up with the finished product, but it wasn't done correctly. So I felt that was a failing on my part. And yeah, book three, I started out trying to do the correct way and then just threw it all out the window. Went, yep, that's not going to happen. It's not me. Yeah, it's got to work for you, hasn't it? What about the business side of writing? So in particular, the marketing and promotion and the social media side. Stella, how are you finding that you're on, you've got your second book just out, How, particularly with your first book, I guess, when that first came out, it's fairly recent. How did you find having to take on board all that side of thing? Because I've been doing indie publishing prior to that, so I'm pretty comfortable with Facebook. Insta, I had to really step up my game last year when the Veterans Day River came out, and I found it useful to follow hashtags that were relevant to the book, the hashtag the Craig's Hut where the Veterans Day River was filmed, or with there was a litter of Labrador puppies. So, yeah, that's a great hashtag to follow, Labrador pup. Things like that, so things would come into my feed that I could then repost if they're on a public account and just say something a little fun, a little relevant. This reminds me of my character, whoever. So I found that quite an easy thing to do that wasn't too time consuming. I have no idea about TikTok at all. I think I now have two accounts and I can't get into either of them. <laughs> and I'm now getting these on my phone. I get these weird notifications with a picture. It'll say something like, I'm single and I'm 40. And there'll be a picture that looks very flesh-toned, but I'm too scared to click on it because I think the ba- bad talk has found me. I don't know what's yeah. going on there. I need to find a teenager who's over the age of 18 who can just supervise my tick rate. <laughs> yeah, I have tried enlisting my youngest daughter, but she's resisting yeah. so far. So, yeah, so library talks were a bit, and I found them a bit, I was a bit anxious at first, but actually when you work out, people are just thrilled to hear what anything you have to date. I've lost my anxiety about that now. And I do quite a bit of blogging for HarperCollins runs its romance.com.au website, and they get me to do things like what I think of Barbara Watts' wife first oh yeah yeah i did i did one on all the wonderful vets have been on tv shows over the year things like just a little i don't know 500 800 blogs on something some fun topic that people like because they say they get a lot of viewers reading those articles so nothing too onerous but yeah am i great at it uh -uh. (laughs) but i'm willing to give it a go (laughs) yeah what's interesting because some people just literally hate it and won't go near it or find it such a chore. So, but Maya, your Insta is always just beautiful because you have these gorgeous flowers and the lambs and things like that. So 
I'm guessing that you're someone that feels reasonably comfortable with Insta. Is that, would that be correct? Yeah, I do, Pam. Thank you. I have lots of beautiful flowers in the garden. It's winter at the moment, so they're a little bit thin on the ground, but I can usually find something to photograph and that I can share, which is nice. Sometimes I get a little bit overwhelmed trying to keep up with all the beautiful comments. And so I do feel bad when I haven't personally responded to each of the messages. But I think the longer you're on social media and I think the more books you have out, the trickier that gets because I guess you grow, which is wonderful, which you want. And that people don't sit back and think, well, Maya didn't write back when I said thank you. Congratulations on your new book. Maya didn't write back personally. I don't think there's anyone sitting there sharpening the knives because of that. (laughs) But I have to remind myself of that when I get to the end of the day and I've been writing all day and then I've picked up the kids from school and taken them to swimming and then come home and cooked them dinner and got out and sent the bottle, the orphan lambs and come inside and put them all to bed. I think, oh, I didn't write back to all those clients. Oh, goodness. That's a bit naughty. I have to try a bit better tomorrow. I do. I really enjoy taking the photos, sharing different things that we've been cooking, growing, and talking about the different inspirations for the book. So it is, it's a very nice to be able to share photos. And I love photography. So, you know, that I think that makes it easier. Well. Yeah. It's another creative outlet, really, isn't it? When yeah. you enjoy that side of things. Are you on TikTok? I opened it up thinking this would be good for the books because there's only so many posts you can do per week. And sometimes at the moment, I'm only posting every few days. And I can't have every post a book post. So I thought, oh, maybe I can use that for my books that I review. I can do TikTok for that. And it fell to the wayside really quickly because I thought if I can't keep up with all the Instagram comments and my Facebook usage is tiny in comparison to my Instagram, I think because people do comment more on the Facebook, it's, it's a bit harder to respond. So no, TikTok. Yeah. I have an account. Probably just like Stella, not sure exactly what the password is and possibly I have multiple accounts when I thought it was a great idea and I had some free time, but no. <laughs> yeah, shelving that one for a while. What about you, Leonie? How do you fund the whole social media and marketing side of things? I suck at social media, which I'm sure everybody actually knows. I'm pretty sure I've seen some cute lambs on your Insta page. Oh, yeah, I have the stuff on my Insta page. I use it all the time because you know, I've got animals up the wazoo because we rescue animals. But I don't take the nice pictures. I don't present it properly. I know all this because I have an 18-year-old and she tells me I don't do the pictures correctly. I don't frame them properly. I don't have the right thing. I don't mix up my feed in the appropriate way. And I like to post funny things like yesterday I did a library talk and there were some funny photos taking me pulling a face at something or other. So I include them. But Taylor... My daughter will go back through it and she will delete the stuff that I've put up that I think is hilarious. My my feed is, I think it was you who said the other week, May, that it's just very real. So, you know, what you, what you get. So I'm quite happy to be on there. Don't get wrong. I procrastinate a lot by spending time on social media, but I don't enjoy it. I don't think it, it puts out there for me what I should be getting out there. What I do love is doing the library talks because I've always had jobs that have dealt with the public. I'm very comfortable speaking in a large forum. So I absolutely love to get out to the libraries and it's really hard for them to shut me up. We did one on the weekend that ended up being three hours. It was supposed to be an hour's booking. And I fully enjoy those. I like trying to draw in those audience members who are just sitting at the start thinking they're just going to get this prim proper recount of how the book came about and just like to 
go off the tangent about absolutely everything and be entertaining. I like to make sure that people are getting a show when they come to the library. So that's kind of the area where I fully invest. But of course, that's normally quite a short window months when your book comes out. Because I like it so much, I do kind of eke that out and I will do pretty much an event every month for the entire year just to keep my hand in and to make it worth Alan and Unwin providing me with the lovely banners. Mine just about mm. worn out now. Being pulled up or designed. Yeah, I don't like yes. Yeah. I don't like the social media side as in putting out the right thing and the hashtags. Taylor's always telling me, No, you've got to use the right hashtags. I'm like, surely I can just stick a hashtag in front of literally any word. Isn't that how it works? And then she goes off about demographics and algorithms and all this weird stuff means nothing to me. It's good you've got an advisor there that Taylor's looking after you. (laughs) Yelling at me. (laughs) We could, I'm sure, talk all day and I'm really conscious I'm keeping you and taking up a lot of your time. But before we go, I really want you to tell us what your new release is and let the listeners know about it and where they can get it. Leonie, we might start with you, your latest. My latest is the River Gum Cottage. And again, it is set in Settlers Breach, as were the previous titles. And it's the story of Lucy, who has grown up on a strawberry farm in the Adelaide Hills. So that's quite close to my house. And she has a relationship breakup and moves to Melbourne. So it's a bit of a reversal at the start. As she wants to come back to the family farm, but she's quite hard-headed. She's trained in business management. She has a qualification in business management because her father insisted she do that. But in truth, she's quite alternative and she's into crystals and natural healing and all sorts of organics and remedies that I'm into. She comes back to Settlers Bridge when her father dies and she meets Jack, who is actually running an organic farm near the riverfront. So you can see that they're going to have parallels there. But in the way the genre goes, there'll be quite a few and uh, tripping blocks put up in their way and some secrets that they've robed in the park. Fantastic and gorgeous cover there too. I have to say that something that I've really noticed over the years <coughs> with rural romance and slash rural fiction is the covers have just gotten better and better, I reckon, from the early days. But they, like we were saying before, they've moved away from that. There must be an Akubra, that type of thing, or there must be the little cottage. And there's still elements of all that stuff, but there's just these beautiful colours and images of the women and just great. I love it. Thank you, Leanne. Maya? Yes, so my newest is Paperbark Hill. It's out with Alan Unwin, came out in June. It's based on Diana McIntyre. She has her dream of starting a dahlia farm. She's got four boisterous sons, one of whom is a future cricket superstar. She's got cats coming out of her ears. She's got a loving family that just have come in with cameo appearances. So if people have read the previous three books, they will recognize some of the characters. They don't have to have read them all. We've also got a male character called Ned Gardner, and he is a local pharmacist. He's traveling back to Southwest Victoria to try and help sort out some issues at his father's free range egg farm. He's got two young children, Willow and Doug. They've, yeah, they've got lots of things to contangle. There's addiction, there's grief, there's that dynamic of different families and how they can contrast. And I guess those second chances at love as well, because they're both adults, they've both got children, there's blended family issues, teenage dramas, but it's all wrapped up in a whole heap of 
baking and gardening and family charm. Fantastic. Thanks, Leah. And Maya and Leonie, your books are, no, Maya, you have characters, as you say, that recur from the other books, but can be read standalone. It's not really a strict series, is it? Correct. Yes. So they're called linked standalone. So if you liked the other characters, you'd be happy to see them pop in occasionally, but each book focuses on a different sister. So it's a completely separate story at a different time in their life and it can happily be read in any order. But if you're going to read all four, you may as well start at the start with Wildflower Ridge. Yours the same, Leonie? Yeah, I always forget the term linked standalone and go, oh, it's a series, but it's not really a series because they can be read in any order and they are always about different central characters, but you get the characters from the previous books pop in. So you can see what happened to, for example, the main character, the farm at Pepper Tree Crossing is Ronnie. In the Wattle Seed Inn, you see where Ronnie's life has ended up three years down the track. So you just get her popping mm. into the cafe and see what's happening. And I'm finding that readers absolutely love that continuity. I had one at the library last night saying, oh, I don't want to get to the end of the book because it's so sad leaving those characters, but I love yours because I know next year's book, I'm going to see just a little bit more of that character, which also puts the pressure on to make sure that I've brought in all the characters that everybody loves. It's that familiarity, isn't it? And it's interesting, like I've, all my books have been completely separate, different characters, different towns, different issues, but I'm currently writing a sequel to my first book, Blackwater Lake, because it's 10 years since that came out. So I thought I'd do that as a bit of a different side project. And I'm just loving, I'm loving going back as the author and meeting the characters again and being back with them because I already know them. So it's just like stepping back into the family type thing. So it must be like that for readers too. Yeah, I imagine so. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Stella? No, Tan like Clarence. I didn't think to bring one with me today. Um, I've got one right here. (laughs) So the main character, Kirsty, she is one of those bush pilots that we're reading a lot about this year from South Australia, but she is involved in a incident right at the very start of the book, and that is what propels her to, because she's a person who doesn't deal with problems because of her background, she decides, she gets this opportunity to run away when her mother fronts up with information about a, a suitcase worth of stuff that some lawyer from a town in northern New South Wales has, has is holding in storage that has been bequeathed to Kirsty. So she just jumps in her ute and she gets the heck out of town, which is what the, her name is Kirsty Fox. That's what the foxes do when trouble happens. So she goes up to this tiny little town called Clarence, which is based where Lismore is, but it's smaller than Lismore. And she gets this suitcase opens it up, and that is the beginning. As she goes through the content, she discovers that there's a whole lot about her father's side of the family that she never knew. It involves a secret going back to World War II, and she enlists the aid of an octogenarian, Carol, a retired teacher who now runs the local history department, and not the local history museum, and she starts investigating her past. And through that process, she learns a lot about herself and what she can and can't do and the limits she's been putting on herself. Joey, the main male character, he grew up in the town in the oldest of six siblings, super responsible as a boy. But he was very tired of always being the one having to bath all the siblings or drag them off the roof when they were painting peace signs on it or just horsing around. So he got the heck out of town on the second teacher in that end, and he has been working as a high-flying share stockbroker in Sydney, but he's just done his dough. 
all of it on a bad investment. So he not only has he lost his pride and his job, he the bank reached the claims of Sydney House. So he's got to sell it urgently. So the only asset he's got left is this little farm in northern New South Wales. And I'm just ignoring for the specific of an author and I can the fact that a farm in northern New South Wales would actually be worth a whole lot of money. So just it's got to just look through that. Billowing out there's some nice wine. And and this one of the secrets in the suitcase happens to be stored on the farm he's got because surprise, surprise, the farm he is living on used to belong to Kirsty's relative on her father's side. And then the third main character, because that's my rule, is the the community. And this community of poems, they run a bush poetry muster every year. And the committee meet to run it. And there's committee minutes in between a few of the chapters. Fantastic. Who are written, they're written by Carol, uh, the historian, who's quite a character. And uh, they decide, because right, Joey had come back. Joey's got a bit of a tragic part when he was a teenager or something. Bad happened, not to him, that affected him deeply. And they decide that Joey needs a bit of love in his life. So they become not only investing in running a bush poetry master, but they get a bit of a matchmaking scheme going on. And they're not taking no for an answer. They're very focused. So that's how it all gets together. There's a lot happening in another beautiful cover. Oh, I just love that cover. Isn't that bloke? He's just so scrummy. Don't you just get your hand into that midriff? And the light and the colours and everything. I, know, I love it. Thanks to your oh. lady there. Yeah. Thank you, ladies. It's been so lovely to chat to you. I've kept up taking a lot of your time, but hopefully you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. You can having us. Thank you. Oh, pleasure. All the work that you put in. I know there's oodles of work and not just coming up with the questions, but editing it and promoing it. So thank you. Oh, no, my pleasure. I enjoy it. It is a bit of a procrastination tool, I have to say. Yes. More writing needs what to happen. happen. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Bye. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>